Look at that. There you are. Lovely. With your books, sir. Barnes and Noble, other uh, thing. other places. You know, that's from uh, either the opening or 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 the closing, and they use that uh, that picture a lot. My girlfriend likes it. I don't. Uh, she she thinks that putting my my finger up, I'm making a point or whatever. But it's been, I guess, the subject of so many memes on uh, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter that it's hard to even look at that picture anymore. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> and I tried to find one where you didn't look so tired, Tom. Uh, but that was just the one that they gave me. And you look exhausted there. You look like, These I can't believe I'm talking about this shit again. <laughs> um, this is the book that sets it straight. Case Against Stephen Avery and uh, What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong. Forward by Nancy Grace. Oh, man, I, this is a great book. Uh, thanks for being here, Ken. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And also, uh, I can't believe that I have both of you here. Tom Fassbender. Both you guys kind of despised by a bunch of uh, people who don't really know what they're talking about. That's okay. We uh, we are getting used to it, which is uh, <laughs> which is kind of uh, which is kind of good. Making a murderer is a uh, and was a, a very very well done uh, piece. Uh, it did vilify though uh, myself. Uh, two really good uh, police officers, Jim Link and uh, Andy Colburn. And, and the reasons, one of the reasons anyway that I wrote the book was to um, set the record straight, and especially for Jim and Andy. You know, uh, if, uh, if any of your listeners have, have read the book, they're going to uh, recall that, uh, that there's a good deal of the book um, dedicated to the aftermath, and that includes uh, officers uh, Lincoln Colburn, who never had any kind of uh, a blemish on, on the record yet. Uh, the defense attorneys uh, during the Avery uh, trial uh, identified them as having planted evidence, as having been um, uh, conspirators in uh, what would have been uh, an incredibly uh, complex um, setup job. Uh, and because of that, uh, both Andy and uh, Jim uh, received a lot of uh, backlash, a lot of uh, hate during the trial itself. But during the making a murderer, 10 years later, it all resurfaced and these individuals continued to be, uh, to be vilified. And, and uh, you know, some of the, some of the things that, uh, that they put up with, as an example, Andy Colburn's son uh, during the trial itself was, uh, was really a, uh, a, a young boy, I think he was like uh, eight or ten years old, and uh, he was accosted by uh, reporters on as he entered onto his school bus, and they asked him what it was like to have a, a dad who was a, a, a crook or who is accused of being a crook. And when uh, when school officials asked uh, the officials to move along, uh, they refused and, and became very aggressive with uh, with this young boy. You know, uh, no. Uh, child, no family member uh, of a law enforcement officer or anybody really should be accosted uh, like that. So that's just an example of the kinds of things that have happened to these guys. I'm hoping that this uh, uh, this book, and I'm hoping that as we get uh, the word out, it uh, sets the record uh, straight and that these guys uh, maybe even might get an apology at the end of it. I would like that. Mr. Kratz, uh, Mr. Fassbender, you're both owed an apology. You're both owed uh, an explanation. You should both be, you should, you should be celebrated for doing your jobs well. You put a killer away, and that's where he belongs. You can tell by looking at him. 
He's shifty. You know, I mean, I've never seen anybody who looks more like a killer than Stephen Avery, uh, and and uh, I mean, uh, except maybe his brother, who I mean, you got to see if you can find something on him. Uh, he he looks like bad news as well. Uh, Mister uh, now, Officer Lank uh, suffered a heart attack. Is that right? He did about uh, five days uh, after making a murderer was released because of the additional uh, stressors. Uh, that uh, came with this, you know. Uh, Jim and his wife were uh, were tracked down in Arizona, where they're uh, where they're retired. Uh, once again, this whole thing uh, stirred up again. Jim's just sick about the uh, about about his reputation, about being called uh, crooked for such a a nice man, for such an honest man to have to put up with that is uh, well, it's. Uh, um, it's unfair, and it isn't something that they should have to. May, may I read a quote out of your yeah, book, Mr. Kratz? It says, uh, and this, this is from uh, from the officer. All all I ever wanted in my entire career was to be known as an honest cop. I felt like I was punched in the stomach the first time these attorneys accused me and Andy of planning evidence. Uh, actually, I thought he was entitled to compensation for being long, wrongly convicted and in prison for all those years. Not only was I upset that he sued. Uh, not only was I not upset that he sued the county, I thought he deserved to be paid. And that was a big uh, assertion of the defense, wasn't it? That the officers were trying to save the county money? Sure, ab absolutely. When, when they have to come up with some motive uh, to, uh, to plant evidence or, uh, as, you, uh, as you read the book, as the extension of this is uh, killing an innocent 25-year-old girl, um, burning her body, uh, planting that and, and other things, uh, to come up with a motive for that has got to be a lot of hate. Uh, and and the, the, the fact of the matter, though, is both, both Andy and Jim um, were never even with Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department when the first Avery case happened, had uh, uh, no aversion at all to uh, to Avery or or his family and in fact uh, both of them as as you've read expressed a um, an opinion that uh, he deserved to get paid that doesn't sound like the kind of motive that would lead to people not only uh, risking their careers risking criminal prosecution uh, setting somebody up uh, for murder and taking their entire um, reputation and, and law enforcement career and are throwing it down the, down the drain. It seems like defense attorneys uh, they're grasping at straws trying to save their client but they don't realize or maybe they do and just don't care that as they grasp they're they're taking down good people with them uh, and uh, and they do it with uh, they don't have to prove anything. They can just throw accusations out there. I mean, I guess I sound naive talking about this, you know, because this is the kind of thing that happens in court every day, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, in this case, it's so high profile. You want to talk uh, about the, the cops a little bit, Tom? You're no Mr. Fassbender, yes. Uh, I, I, yeah. uh, you interviewed um, the nephew, Brendan. Yes. yes. Dassey, is that right? Yes, Brendan Dassey. Uh, yeah. I guess I would say, you know, just segueing off of Ken just a bit, um, being a police officer for 30 years and retiring in that capacity and seeing what those officers went through. Andy Colburn, I actually taught at his recruit school and got to know him real well. One of the other officers in Manitowoc County, um, I taught in a death investigation school. Uh, I couldn't find probably more honest, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth type of people and, and the police officers they were. And, and in reliving this again, I, I was... Ken had approached me, and I, I wasn't going to get involved because I thought, well, this will die. And eventually, someone had to stand up. Ken was doing it uh, by himself, 
and eventually I felt I needed to stand up too for these, these officers. Not only officers, but Ken and I both feel very strongly about the, the victim's family, Teresa Halbach's family, mm -hmm. the true victims in this case, and what they've gone through. I mean, I think I'm reliving this. Can you imagine what they're going through reliving this? This is Laura uh, Nereider. She says, uh, these officers wanted that information in the worst way. They got it in the worst way by feeding it, by feeding, uh, by feeding it straight to Brendan Dassey. That's what she told Dateline. When you hear something like that, I mean, how do you respond to that? I would respond by saying that there were, there were multiple occasions that Brendan Dassey was spoken to, not by us, but by law enforcement, and then by myself on a couple occasions too. And my comment is you have to look at the whole picture, not just that one interview. You can see a pattern with Brendan Dassey, a pattern that he knowingly lied to us, lied to law enforcement in his first several interviews and beyond. It was apparent that he was trying to protect Stephen Avery. And number three, it was also apparent that something was obviously bothering Stephen Avery, or uh, Brendan Dassey. Mm -hmm. So we filed up with interviews. And, the, and you notice I'm calling these interviews. They're not interrogations, they're witness interviews. Right. Where we think that Brendan had seen or heard or was a party to something that was horrible. It was in no way a foregone conclusion that he had anything to do with no, it. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we were doing. We were following up on it to see if there was more. After the first two interviews, we kind of put Brendan on the back burner. Uh -huh. and, and that was in November of 95, or 2005. And then in about February of 2006, a relative of uh, Brendan's comes forward and talks about something's wrong, he's acting up. He's losing weight. He's crying. Something was wrong with him. When we got that information, then we thought, well, maybe it's time to move him back onto the front burner and go talk to Brennan and see if there's other things that, and we firmly believe there was things that he knew because the evidence showed that also. Mm -hmm. For example, the first time that law enforcement talked to him, he denied there ever being a fire at his Uncle Stephen's house on October 31st, 2005. Denied it. Well, we knew that there was a fire there and that Brendan was there because we had witnesses that told us that. So, again, lying, protecting, Only avoiding. One to lie about that. Yeah. And then the second interview, he talks about, he admits that there's a fire, but he talks about it being on different days of that week, not on the day in question. Again, if something horrible happened, oftentimes a person's going to avoid that day. And he may start making admissions, but it's going to be a different day. So you see, it didn't happen on that day. Sure. So those are examples of the first two interviews. And there was blatant uh, comments made by him that, that were, went to him protecting Steve. And so, again, witness interview. What does he know? I think he knows more. Did we need him to talk about Stephen Avery? No. We had a, a whole bunch of evidence. But we went there to see if he knew more and to talk to this kid because something was bothering him. Uh -huh. So we do. We go there on February 27. We talk to him at the school. And again, it's very apparent something's bothering him. Now he makes more admissions. Again, the fire's on the 31st. He's over there. He helps tend to the fire. Now, what would you be thinking? We know at this point that Teresa was burned in that burn pit behind Stephen's garage. How could you be at that fire and not make some observations. Uh -huh. So then he admits that he saw body parts in the fire. Okay, but he doesn't talk anything about beyond that, that Stephen talked about 
admitting that, that this happened, etc. Well, that night then, we talked to him again with his mother and his brother present, and he makes admissions because we had gotten some other information about helping clean up, using bleach and gasoline and paint thinner in the garage to help clean up. Mm-hmm. Again, something he never told us. Mm-hmm. So you can see this pattern happening. It, it almost seems as if... He starts at a point and just spirals towards the center, towards the absolute truth. Like you get, a, it's a little bit more and a little bit more. And I don't know how it works with people when they have a guilty conscience. Right. But maybe it bubbles up to the surface. Well, as an investigator for many years, you see that people who are involved in heinous crimes generally don't come right out and say, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're going to minimize, they're going to deny. And an investigator's job is to question them on it. Ken would say, call them out on it, uh-huh. so to speak. Right. That's our job. Yeah. As long as it's done within, within proper police tactics. That's what all investigators do during a, during a, a statement of interrogation. You're going to get a denial. You're going to confront a, a suspect uh, or a witness with uh, information that doesn't add up to what they're saying. And they get to the truth. Well, the defense calls that uh, coercive. They they call that uh, uh, something improper with uh, with law enforcement. And of course, um, as a as a career work. prosecutor, you do it every day. It's the kind of it's the kind of interview that uh, you know that you're gonna that you're gonna see just about every day. And these guys, uh, when you look at the full body of all six interviews, there's six interviews with Brendan Dassey, making a murderer show just snippets of one interview. And I think it's uh, uh, again, I think it's unfair to uh, to take uh, just a couple of snippets from uh, from one interview uh, and uh, represent that this uh, this was what happened in all of them. wasn't at all. Brendan Dassey was there. Brendan Dassey helped, uh, and uh, Brendan Dassey was a party to uh, both rape and murder. Yeah, uh, as I understand it, it was very unfair the way it was represented in making a murderer. Uh, they they sh- truly want to give the appearance that this poor dumb kid is uh, basically coached into making a confession that's going to lock him up for the rest of his life. If I can... Why would anybody want to do that? I'll dress that just a little more. They say we made promises at the beginning of the interview and during the interview. And we did tell him things that, like, we're going to stand behind you. We're in your corner, etc. I'm telling you, if you listen to the end of that interview, you're going to hear us follow up on those promises when we tell him, we need to tell your mother now. We're going to call her and have her come here. You need to talk to her. You need to talk to your dad. Are you all right? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to hurt yourself? Here's our cell phone numbers. Call us anytime. Mark telling him to call night or day. Can we get you a counselor? We'll get you a counselor. My God. Those are follow-ups on our promises. You never saw that in Making a Murderer. No. Of course not. Well, it's, it's part of this vilification of policemen and uh, of law and order in general that's going on. And... and as to do you have anything to say as to the larger sort of phenomenon of that that's going on in this oh, country sure. right now? Absolutely. You know, the making a murderer uh, came out at exactly the right time. You know, we had this uh, this intersection of not only the Black Lives Matter but the the criminal justice reform movement that uh, was all across the country. Some of it's very justified. You know, uh, cops do plant evidence. Cops do uh, intentionally set people up for crimes. And I know that Making a Murderer very much wanted to put that story out there, that narrative out there, which, uh, which is fine. I don't have any problem with, uh, with them doing that. But it didn't happen in this case. This isn't the case to use as your example for that. Not only do we have experienced uh, homicide and, and other uh, law enforcement, but they did everything by the book. They knew that they were being scrutinized. 
They knew that uh, uh, others um, were watching, were involved in the case. And even from a, a common sense standpoint, if you were wanting to plant evidence on some case, uh, Stephen Avery wasn't the case to do it on. Absolutely not. I mean, it's just a, a common sense. I know nothing, and I know that. I mean, like the guy's already been uh, wrongly convicted once. And uh, as you say it in the book, yeah, the, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny in this particular case. Um, I'm going to quote your book. Uh, I really enjoyed it, by the way. Thank you. And uh, you, this book is available. It's uh, crimereport.nyc. You can go there. I have a link. Look at that. There you are. Lovely. With your book, sir. Barnes & Noble, saying, other, one uh, more thing. other places. You know, that's from uh, either the opening or, or, or the closing, and they use that... Uh, that picture a lot. My girlfriend likes it. I don't. Uh, she she thinks that putting my my finger up, I'm making a point or whatever. But it's been, I guess, the subject of so many memes on uh, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter that it's hard to even look at that picture anymore. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> and I tried to find one where you didn't look so tired, Tom. Uh, but that was just the one that they gave me. And you look exhausted there. You look like. These I days, can't believe I'm talking about this shit again. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Brutal. Uh, and, and you were just on Dateline. How was that? I mean, it was in February, I know. Yeah, we were just on yeah. Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz today. We yeah. were, uh, we've been on okay. both coasts. We've been, uh, oh, we've been everywhere. So that's... Uh, I'm honored to have you guys. That's why we're in New York, and we're happy to, uh, happy to be here. Pat. Thanks for slumming yeah. it. I appreciate it. How <laughs> much uh, longer are you guys going to be in New York, anyway? Uh, just till tomorrow. We're, okay. Uh, we're, heading, we're heading back, and we've got some other... Some other things back in Appleton and, and uh, Milwaukee to do. Have a chance to catch any shows or do anything fun while you're here. Last, uh, we've been here several times uh, since, and uh -huh. uh, we have uh, we've done a little bit of uh, of sightseeing. But our real um, effort is obviously to <laughs> flip the narrative if we can to get it back to when the cops were uh, were still considered not only the good guys but uh, competent and and doing uh, a good job, and when unrepentant psychopathic murderers. Uh, we're still known as the bad guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the good guys without even a shade of irony. And, uh, you know, back, uh, back to those days. You know, I interviewed, um, and this is off topic, Ralph uh, Friedman. He's the, number, he's the most decorated police officer in NYPD history. He was in the 41st Precinct, Fort Apache, the Bronx, in the 1970s. He uh, has four uh, kills, you know, which are like all legit, confirmed and everything, eight shootings. And that man uh, is a badass, and he texts in all caps. <laughs> I'm telling you, everything he writes is in all caps. An intense guy. Uh, but, you know, emblematic of his time, you know what I mean? Because like a guy like that now, you know, I mean, what would he do now? You know, get sued? going around and beating law and order out of the jungle of uh, the city like that is a, it, it, what I guess what I'm saying is people who are doing good stuff now are bad it's how did it all get flipped so much I don't uh, understand the, the you know the entire thing flip is a great it's a great observation actually because uh, 10 years ago um, when we got the two convictions here the prosecution was um, uh, you know, was uh, was heralded as having done a really good job. The police were uh, were, were recognized, were, received awards. In fact, this case, and, and I don't mean to embarrass Tom, but this case was used nationwide as how to handle a complex um, homicide investigation 
with high profile, uh, uh, you know, uh, goings on. Yet uh, now it is uh, probably uh, the uh, the biggest example of uh, police misconduct that is uh, suggested by uh, by the uh, the filmmakers and and uh, first before that the defense attorney. I'm only a stand up comedian. I've been following crime since 2011. I started doing this show, so. I read to the next level, but that's about all I can say, you know? I mean, like, I, I'm not educated anyway, but it's so obvious that you guys d- handled it perfectly. I mean, like, with the blood, a lot's made of the blood. Oh, that the uh, the seal on the evidence box was broken, you know? And there's a hole in the top of the vial. Yeah, that's all explained. And, yeah, and then, a vial, yeah, a vial of blood for those that, uh, that haven't seen... Uh, making a murderer, there's a vial of blood that's uh, located uh, kind of late in the game uh, in the clerk of court's office in, in uh, the Manitowoc uh, uh, County uh, Courthouse. And what's interesting about it is on making a murderer, that vial of blood is described by uh, defense attorney Jerry Buting uh, as being the game changer, as being the one thing that is going to flip this whole thing, that it was obvious that the vial was tampered with because it had a hole in the top of it, that it was a, a red-letter day for the defense. And the, the, yeah, the making a murderer never tells uh, the audience that every vial of blood that uh, that is a purple top tube has a hole in it because how does the blood get in there and so every phlebotomist after making murder was on was writing me saying what the hell's going on every purple top tube's got a hole in it and so they never do explain that it is uh, not sketchy at all that it is absolutely commonplace that it's supposed to have uh, a, a hole in it and you've got uh, Jerry Buting uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago when Tom and I faced him for the first time uh, out in uh, L.A., uh, still suggesting that all these things add up to uh, the planting evidence, and I don't know how you keep doubling down on these uh, these these planting theories that you keep uh, <laughs> that you keep advancing. I'm very curious, and I want to ask both of you. Um, and uh, since you were just talking, I'll, I'll ask you, Mr. Fassbender. Uh, do you think he believes that? Uh, Mr. Buting. Mr. Buting? Yeah. Do you think he truly, no. he couldn't no. possibly believe He's a very that. intelligent man. Right. And he, he's been around, and no one will ever convince me that Jerry Buting does not know that Stephen Avery committed this crime. And does he, does he for some reason believe that he can make a jury believe other, or that there's going to even be another trial? Or, I mean, like, what, what good does it do him at this point to restate these things? Well, he's not on the case anymore, and so, um, uh, you know, the uh, the cynic in me uh, would say that the only reason now to advance that would be to to sell books or their worldwide tour. He and uh, he and uh, uh, Mr. Strang, as as you know, have been in uh, the U.S. and Canada and Australia and all across Europe, uh, giving uh, speeches and and really uh, speaking to uh, lots and lots of very adoring. Fans, you know, it was so funny is when I announced that I was going to write this uh, this little 190-page book. Uh, I was absolutely attacked for trying to profit from uh, from this. And then you've got these uh, these two guys who have have made their world uh, tours and uh, and everything else. And not only are they not criticized for that, they're uh, uh, you know they're held up as uh, as being the uh, uh, the bastion of justice. And I think it's an interesting dynamic. It's an interesting dynamic uh, in in that it's just pathetic and it's a commentary on what's happening right now this is the book to read if you're interested in this case if you want to know what actually happened 
look no further than this. It's the prosecutor, uh, Ken Krantz. This, he knows more about it than anybody. He's the fucking prosecutor. Excuse me. Uh, find out the details. And you know what? Put it to rest uh, that, that Stephen Avery did this crime. I was convinced uh, within 10 pages that, uh, that, that this was a done deal. The, uh, and not only that, but the character of this guy, the way it's built up in making a murderer, they make him seem like such a sweet guy, I understand. Now, let's look at that Amazon uh, thing. I want to look at that real quick. Oh, look, this is where we are. This is my review of your book right here. I said, you know what? I'm going to review this book. Fantastic. Give it five stars. And, uh, and by all means, when you do buy it, review this book because it doesn't have the stars that it's supposed to have. Yeah, the one stars from 70 or so people that have never even uh, bought the book, giving it one star uh, views. Uh -huh. By the way, on, uh, on Twitter, you know, there's, a, there's, this, um, there's this group of Avery supporters and, and uh, they all got together. This isn't even uh, an allegation. It's, it's all over Twitter to um, inviting everybody to go on Amazon and put one-star reviews whether they've read it or not. And that's, boy, that's just appalling, you know, yeah, trying to, just trying to, uh, to destroy any legitimate story about what actually happened in the case. Um, this is towards the beginning. You said, you know, and you were talking about profiting from this, you know, as if that was your motive. Right. Even though you lost quite a bit, oh my God, I lost my law firm. I, uh, you know, I've lost uh, just about everything in this case. I never wrote this book to uh, to make any money at all. You and the, like, you and the other officers were the ones who did not gain or profit from this. And never anyway. wanted to. No, is, I'm writing it because the truth matters. And people get hurt when it is twisted and misrepresented. Uh, and. Uh, you also say more public horror has been expressed at the imagined plight of Stephen Avery than at Teresa Hallback's very real murder. Uh, great point and um, very well said and very direct. You go right to the evidence. You don't have to like, we're not reading about your childhood in this book, you know? I mean, this is like, a, this is a, it's, it's a crime story about the evidence and that's the best thing is that it doesn't matter what people think of you or Fassbender or any of the cops involved or making a murder. It's the evidence. As I put in the book, uh, you don't have to believe a word I say. Everything that's in that book is supported by uh, evidence, uh, police reports, um, lab reports, uh, witness statements. Mm. Uh, you know, it's all, it's all supported. And uh, to lay that out, and I don't mean to... Uh, to pat myself on the back at all, Pat, but to lay all of that out and still the willingness of most of the general public to set their common sense aside and to still uh, insist that he's innocent. Why? Because they watched a movie. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm wondering if there's uh, intelligent life on on uh, on other planets, and having somebody say, "Well, I've watched Star Trek. You should know that there's intelligent life," and because I watched a movie or I watched a TV show, uh, that that now is uh, is their um, basis of knowledge. You know, you saw if you watched Making a Murder, exactly what the filmmakers wanted you to see. And you got to remember that. Uh -huh. They showed you exactly what they wanted, but most importantly, if they didn't have an answer for it, things like electronics and things like hoodlatch DNA or things like the bullet or all of these other um, critical pieces of evidence, if they didn't have an answer for it, they just ignored it as if it never even happened. That's not a documentary, Pat. That's an advocacy piece. It's, uh, it's some kind of uh, a crusade, um, but it's nothing even close to a documentary. It's, it's twisted victim propaganda.
uh, you know, if, if the victimization of the killer. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it's the world we're living in. I don't, I, what do I know? You know, I'm, I'm 46. Right. How old are you? I'm 56. 56. Yeah. Uh, but but I look good for 56. You look. <laughs> I thought I was older than you. <laughs> See, that's just what we uh, have to say. <laughs> but he hadn't run. We do have a lot Norton of too long to say stuff like that. So uh, I did his show, and it was just like it was brutal. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Norton is nuts. <laughs> Norton says exactly what he's thinking all the time. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you play. Uh, you play cards now. Yeah, you play poker now. You play. Yeah, do, uh, what, what, not very well. But uh, but they like to see me in the game, so that's good. That's yeah, exactly. That's, right. Right. that's how I'm, it is I'm when there, I walk I'm up. There basically as a contributor. That's, it's like easy money. Look at come here to donate. I play. Uh, I like to play a dealer's choice game. You know, with a lot of limits and stuff like that. You know, nickel, dime, quarter, all that kind of stuff. Uh, these other guys, they like to play a little bit higher. And I go, okay, you know, <laughs> it hurts me more than it hurts them. Uh, did okay on Saturday, though. Now, uh, and you also, you, you had a band. Yeah, I was in a, a band for about uh, 20 years. In fact, the uh, attorney general currently in uh, Wisconsin, Brad Schimmel, was the bass player in uh, in in the band. Brad still, uh, still plays in a band. So What's it called? I was looking at, it was called Alibi. It was all uh, prosecutors except for our lead singer, who was the real talent of... Uh, of the group, but uh, we were together for quite a number of years and and had a good time. You know, I saw those microphones, the uh, the SM58s around here. As I'm just walking around, all the sure SM58s, and you know that he's been in a band if there's SM58s around. Yeah. Right. Man, you I, can recognize those uh, those sure microphones that are that are indestructible. They're fantastic. That's right. What do, what do you play? Guitar. Guitar. Okay. Are you good? No. Yeah, me neither. I, uh, I I I don't. I push the buttons on the keyboard, but like I'm not, musicians are dicks. You know what I mean? Well, so am I, and that it really makes it uh, makes it kind of an easy uh, an easy transition. And you're, and you're not in the law anymore at all. No, and at December thirty first, I retired from the active uh, practice of law. Did you do uh, that consult and things, but not. Uh, uh, I was in a defense attorney for um, uh, for the years uh, two thousand eleven uh, until December thirty first. Well, uh, you, you talk a little bit about you know uh, your, your, the text that you sent to this uh, person, uh, who and and I don't, uh, and I, I would consider myself some sort of a friend of Bill. Uh, I don't know if uh, do you do you do you drink? Are you a drinker? Sure. Oh no, I drink. Uh, yeah, but the, but the prescription drug uh, uh, abuse uh, that I engaged in, which is uh, probably a pretty good. Uh, a pretty good time to, uh, to, to talk about this. You know, I, See, I would say after making a murder, uh, I had um, uh, kind of crashed and then developed a uh, prescription drug uh, dependence, uh, Vicodin and uh, Xanax and Ambien. Those were my combos. That's Understandable. A, Those are fun. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a bad combo, though. That's a Heath Ledger uh, a death combo. So it's not okay. something that you should be fooling around with. But what it did, Pat, is it really removed all the inhibitions that I had. And so um, involving myself in, in texting or other kinds of um, sexual acting out uh, really was something that was uh, uh, deplorable. And I found myself engaged in, in these kind of behaviors. Uh, and after the fact, 
fact, you know, when you I went to treatment, went to inpatient treatment, and four four years of aftercare after that, and and you know, twelve uh, step groups four times a week, and and the whole deal. And what I learned um, was that you know, obviously, the unmanageability of of the addiction. But what I learned was addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. It doesn't make any difference if it's alcohol or crack or if it's a heroin or sex or gambling. It's all the same. You're medicating feelings, mm-hmm. and when you medicate those feelings. Um, and there's the cycle of, of shame after you act out. And, and of course, anybody who's uh, had problems with either chemicals or behavioral addictions know that. You isolate. It's a, it's a bad, dark place to be. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me was this whole thing coming forward, me ending up in treatment, me uh, making it out the other side. And I get to help people right now uh, every day that uh, suffer with isolation, that suffer with their own addictive um, uh, problems. And when I'm able to talk to them and they know, they can see it in my eyes that I was there. They see the pain. They see the, uh, they see the realization that what they're going through isn't any different than what I went through. And if I can make it out the other side, if I can, you know, four, five, six years after the fact, come out uh, with relatively uh, good reputation and uh, getting, you know, my uh, my self-esteem uh, back and my self-respect back, uh, hopefully that's going to help somebody down the line, Pat. Yeah, it should. And, um, Bob, that, you just said a mouthful. I mean, you know, there's a lot there. Uh, we could... We could have a meeting almost on that, I guess. Uh, but um, the thing that strikes me is that you're in the public eye. What you did was probably nothing that like most people don't do. You know what I mean? A few texts to um, to somebody who might not be as interested as we would like them to be. Yeah, the difference though is that the 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 relative positions of uh, of my position and a crime victim. You know, you can't get any more. Of a, of a disparate uh, uh, position there and never should I have been involved with uh, texting or trying to seek a personal relationship with, with really anybody I work with, much less a, a crime victim. So I, It's I, not going to be able to get you to cut yourself gonna, some slack on this. I'm not, you know, I, and I shouldn't. I'm, I'm very, uh, I never have uh, made an excuse for it. I self-reported to the uh, Office of, uh, of Lawyer Regulation, the texting event. Um, you know, I've done everything I can to, uh, to take responsibility for that. And I think, at least in the book, since I dedicate a section uh, of my recovery uh, journey in in the book, uh, hopefully, as I mentioned before, others will uh, at least take some solace, if not information from that. Yeah, I think that I'm sure that you help people just by including it. Was it your idea to include it? Or Absolutely. It was? Okay. I insisted that that be included. Wow. That's, it's really inspiring. But, you know, as bottoms go, as, and I know what you're going to say, but it, it could have been worse. Okay. Uh, no, it could have been. <laughs> Absolutely. If I wouldn't have had some intervention at that time, um, as we all know, and as those people who have sat through any kind of 12-step meeting knows, uh, you're either going to end up dead uh, in jail uh, or something else. Those things, that is, those addictive uh, behaviors that really uh, launch off into active addiction, it usually doesn't end well. There's usually a bad thing that uh, that comes from that. You know, I, I want to I wanna thank Tom because uh, of all the cops after this whole thing blew up, 
uh, of all the cops that uh, had known me, and most of them, uh, right or wrong, had kind of uh, cut me out of their lives and, and really, uh, you know, I became a pariah. Uh, Tom uh, was the one guy who stood by me and said, you know, you've taken responsibility as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, you're okay. And, and he was the one guy that I could always talk to, and I, I really appreciate that. I want to publicly say that. Well, how about that? And I, and I, and I would say I'm very, very proud of Ken and, and what he's done after hitting ground zero almost. And uh, I, I can't say enough about that and how proud I am of him. And what I would say to anyone that, that, that um, badmouth Ken goes after him, who are you that is without wrongdoing? You know, who am I to criticize Ken Kratz? Am I perfect? No, I'm not perfect. And these people, are they perfect? No, absolutely not. Sweep your own doorstep first before you start criticizing other people. I couldn't agree Just more. don't think I can do that. Well, it's the age of trolls we live in, you know. People now just uh, say their opinion, and then they tag it with, you know, and he's a pervert on top of all that. And, he, you know, he did this, he did that. It's, um, you know, it's regrettable. You guys have done nothing but the right things, you know. And um, to lose so much reputation, esteem, career, uh, just because these two filmmakers decided to uh, get interested in something, you know? They're from New York, so they're Columbia, Columbia University, and, and, you know, this is the second Columbia film. University is the worst. This is the second film that was made by these filmmakers about this topic. The first, 2008, was presented to the Columbia Film Festival, and uh, nobody can see that now. They have totally buried that film. Why? Because it was before they had to put the other side on. They didn't have uh, any restrictions at all. I can only imagine the agenda uh, that that film shows. But we have contacted Columbia. We've contacted Netflix. We've contacted the filmmakers. They refused to give it. They buried it. They're not going to see that film. So if any of your listeners are uh, either people that saw it when it was in 2008 uh, to, um, to Columbia or uh, if uh, uh, we ever have a shot to, uh, to take a look at it, I'd give quite a bit to, uh, to take a look at that original well, film. What, were, you, were you aware of it at the time in 2008? I was aware of it in 2013 when they first asked me to participate in making a murderer um, one. Uh, and I knew that they had made this, and so I asked them, could I see this finished product? I'd like to see the, um, the film that you've presented to Columbia. I know that that's going to show your agenda. I think it's fair to show me. Not only has the defense attorney seen it, uh, they likely um, uh, participated in making that movie, and so it's fair that I see it before you interview me. They said no. They said we're not going to show you that. We're not going to tell you what you know, our angle is or our agenda is. And, of course, I think I was spot on with, uh, with reading that they weren't going to give the prosecution a fair shake, even if we would have agreed to sit down with them and be interviewed. Well, of course. When you think about it, if they're just going to come and reaffirm what the prosecution says, which is that the blood evidence and the key and uh, the, the car being found on this property and the evidence affirms that the right thing was done, that's not a movie. They don't. I guess that they've they've managed to turn it into this whole... How much money do you think they've made on this? Millions and millions of dollars. I don't know, because they probably sold it without knowing what it was worth. At least that's my take on it. Netflix certainly has made millions and millions of dollars on it. 19 million people saw it in the first 35 days, probably 40 million uh, total. That's a lot of money, and that's going to get you a season two. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be what? What, 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 do you, what could that possibly be? 
Well, it's going to be, yeah. Do you have any ideas about that? Like, what could possibly it's, be? It's going to be the Brendan Dassey uh, uh, appeal, and it's also going to be the trying to get new evidence on, on the Stephen Avery case. The problem, of course, is what happens if all of the physical evidence that Kathleen Zellner is uh, having tested reaffirms what the crime lab in the original results were? Are they going to come out and say, uh, we're sorry? Or are they going to say Ken Kratz and, and uh, Andy Colburn and Jim Link and, and Tom Fossbender now deserve my apology? Of course not. They've, uh, in almost uh, with, uh, with immunity, uh, have launched after, again, really good cops. I'm going to take myself out of this because some of the criticism on me is, uh, is warranted. But what these cops did absolutely nothing wrong. They're never going to get an apology. They're never going to get their reputations back. They're never going to get the, that part of it back. But what will happen is that if the narrative does flip back, uh, I think that the family will get their sense of closure back. I think the Halbach family who now has to put up with questions like, um, is the real killer still out there? Or is uh, Mike Halbach, uh, one of the brothers, involved himself or one of the boyfriends or, or, or something like that? And they've got to put up with that nonsense you know, every, every day. So hopefully, even though we're not going to get uh, those, uh, those kinds of apologies that, that we were hoping for, hopefully it'll finally uh, be put to rest and that uh, Stephen Avery as everybody will then feel <laughs> feel uh, good about is uh, is right where he belongs and will die in prison. That's that's what we're hoping the end of this thing looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, anything to add to that? I would just add, and more recently, the narrative out there that Teresa's still alive. Uh, that the, that they're starting to put forward. Wow, and that that family has to live with that. And that's to what end? To just com continue to muddy the waters, continue to like say, hey, if if uh, if we can't prove he didn't do it, maybe we can prove nothing was done. I mean, uh, well, is it one of those Elvis is alive? They just something to say. It it, it almost seems. You know, with the internet, there's no. We'll talk about cyberbullying just a little bit here. There's no, no limits to what people. You know, I got four thousand death threats. They said, they meaning the the Avery supporters at the height of this last January, probably, uh, they were saying things like they wanted to rape my daughter and, and they wanted to hold me and make me watch that and they wanted to do these deplorable uh, things to uh, to my family and my my uh, my daughter-in-law and all these other just really vile very specific things but there's no um uh, no accountability for for that for people on the internet i think that's sad i think that that's a, obviously a cultural uh, a cultural shift that it's almost a blood sport now that they want to see just how vile they can be and can they get a a, a rise out of people and things and boy i hope uh, i hope someday the tide of that uh, is uh, is stemmed pat and that uh, yeah. people stop being so hurtful uh, to each other or to people like cops or prosecutors who 11 years ago were just doing their job. They shouldn't be targeted uh, as people that uh, that should be attacked like that. I think it's I think it's selective, Mr. Kratz, that, um, you know, certain people get attention. I mean, look at Leslie Jones, you know, someone used the word gorilla in a tweet related to her and the person that they're a fan of gets thrown off Twitter, Milo, you know. Right. It's um, 
it all depends on on which side of the uh, spectrum you're on. I really believe that's true. I mean, you know, Twitter's obviously a very liberal thing. You're not suggesting that there's two different <laughs> standards, are you, with uh, with our media and with our our with our uh, citizenry right now that. there's our citizenry you know is is it just seems like you're either with them or you're against them and yeah. there's uh, there's such divisiveness there's uh, there's no way for people uh, to come together i think what you're doing is important i really do and i think this book is important and i think the truth is important and i, I think too. that it's important that people you know start to like show some respect for things that are true facts stop spinning stop making it something that it's not Start by reading this. This is called Avery, the case against Stephen Avery, and what making a murderer gets wrong, and boy, do they get it wrong. Uh, this is Ken Kratz. Just go to crimereport.nyc, click that link, buy this book, leave a review. This book is so well done, Ken. I mean, like, I, I, I'm not a book reader, okay? The first book, you know, the first book I wrote, it was harder than I ever thought it was going to be. I knew this case, I thought, very, 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 very well, but uh, condensing it into a fast read, which was our goal, uh, because it's for the it's for the general public, not for the Redditors and all those people that dig into all these these facts, but it's the broad brush strokes, and, and I think once you uh, once you read it, uh, it, it, it does set things set things right if you're open minded and want to want to listen to that. I'd like to say, well, what what more do you need? Right. The more all this, you know, enough fluff in the world. Let's get to it and, yeah, the facts and get it the done. Facts, and they're not three hours. You can get through that, and that's uh, that's all we need. I just don't think it's that complicated. And I and I think that this is uh, this this was great. Thanks for. If I feel smarter about about the whole thing. Then, uh, then I tell you, a lot of the people that I read who are on, you know, Amazon, and they're like, well, you know, and I started arguing with these people, you know, pulling stuff out of the book, you know, and refuting the stuff they're saying. They're like, you know, uh, one guy says, you know, that what about the unsealed uh, blood and the evidence? And even Mr. Kratz never says anything about that. And I went, he said he you. certainly you get did. Into those conversations, age fifty-five, you know, that's all they. That's all they do, Pat. We got people that all they do is. Is is go through this, you know, in Jerry yeah. Buting's book, which uh, which I read, uh, Illusions of, of Justice, I think it's called. Uh, he, it, it was okay because I'm a lawyer because I could read it. It was it was you know a lot of legalese and, and things like that. You know, Jerry's a bright guy, and I really I've respected Jerry, and he's done a lot of good work for, um, uh, for criminal justice reform. And and I'm not ever going to badmouth uh, 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 Jerry Buting, at least the kind of person he is. I think he's passionate, and look all day long, I'll take somebody who's passionate about what they do rather than somebody who's uh, smarmy and sits on the internet and just uh, throws stones so jerry at least is out there uh, doing doing uh, doing the best that that he can but in his uh, uh, in his book um which is uh <laughs> which uh, which is uh, an interesting read he takes uh, uh, many opportunities to attack me personally uh, and uh, and and the prosecution, which I guess I would have, uh, I guess I would have uh, avoided. But uh, Jerry Buting, in his book, uh, says that uh, the Stephen Avery uh, criminal case is uh, the most. I think the word was uh, the most analyzed criminal case uh, since um, you know the uh, the Jesus of Nazareth uh, uh, prosecution with Pontius Pilate, which I think puts uh, Jerry's putting himself uh, in in very rare verified error there but 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 the point I guess is well made that uh, the Stephen Avery case from a case that uh, probably should have been um, you know just uh, uh, well covered has become uh, obsessively covered and analyzed by people and uh, you know the funny thing is it's it's in it's in that environment 
that for 11 years they still have no evidence at all of planting, of conspiracy, of any wrongdoing at all. If it's going to be that scrutinized mm -hmm. for this case, for that investigation, Tom's investigation and our prosecution to have held up against that kind of scrutiny, that's a pretty good prosecution. I would have to agree. You guys are great. Uh, Mr. F I, I do have a question uh, about uh, Brendan uh, Dassey uh, as you spoke to him. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a, an appeal process underway for him, right? I mean, yes. and, and so can you fill me in on where we are with that? I, I could, but I, I, would, I would defer to uh, Ken because it's legal, okay. legalese and legal talk. Oh, I, and see. So I think he'd just be better at okay. talking to that. He's, uh, his case is in the, uh, the Court of Appeals and the federal system. By summer, probably, we should have a, a decision on that. You know, a, a federal magistrate, um, I think in August, uh, threw out the, uh, uh, the confession against uh, Brendan, uh, indicating that although what the investigators did um, individually, that is, the tactics they used individually were all permissible, when put together, when combined, uh, it created an environment where uh, Brendan uh, gave an involuntary statement. We, of course, uh, we, uh, <laughs> I would say we as uh, on the state side, but I think we uh, who know interrogation law uh, find that to be just uh, baffling, just as, uh, astounding. And although uh, I don't want to predict uh, what's going to happen with the case to have accepted this magistrate's view of interrogation law would really change interrogation law for cops all across uh, the country. Can you imagine not being able to interview um, juvenile defendants or other uh, other kind of defendants while using permissible interrogation tactics? You know, what are we teaching our, our law enforcement officers that we're telling you these are all permissible, wow. uh, but if you use them together, uh, somehow uh, we're going to throw uh, something like that out. That shouldn't stand. Uh, I hope that... Um, Until that you frame it, that that way, I, will... I, I didn't understand that. That, that. That's all permissible, and yet they go, yeah, but, you know, there's still something about this we don't like. Look, saying to them, we want you to tell the truth. There's nothing coercive about that. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Well, think about this for a second. In the interview, we were talking about March 1st, one that is in question here. Within the first half hour of that interview, not only do we tell Brendan, we need you to be honest, we need you to tell the truth, don't make stuff up, essentially, don't listen to what other people tell you and tell us that, essentially. We tell him all these things. If you don't know, tell us that. If you don't remember, tell us that. You know, we, we intimate all these things probably in the first 30 minutes or less of that interview. Also within the first 30 minutes of the interview, he starts making statements to us that shocked us quite literally about what happened and his involvement in what happened, that, that Stephen raped her, that he saw Teresa in there tied up in the bedroom. And then he gets into his involvement. This isn't stuff we fed him. No, I, he's coming up I with details. No I mean, we were shocked with these details. That was what I was trying to say earlier. Is that like, how could you have possibly fed that to like? You could have never predicted that he would say, "Yes, I raped this woman." No. Uh, I mean, I don't think people know that he said that. Well, not, that's that not in making a murder. No. That stuff is not in making murder. His, his, the, 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 the majority of his confession was not in making a murder. Yeah. 
And, and where would we, again, this was a witness interview we were starting out as, not a suspect. We didn't expect this. We just thought he knew more. I have some of that. Uh, wow. He, said he went to go uh, pick up some stuff around the yard. Uh, then after that, we he asked me to come in because uh, he wanted to show me something. And he showed me that she was laying as his hallback hallback on the bed. Her hands were roped up to the bed and that her legs were cuffed. And he told me to have sex with her, so I did because I thought I was not going to get away from him because he was too strong. You know, those those kind of statements, let me let me just let me put it in, in, in these terms. When Brendan Dassey was asked why he had sex with uh, Teresa Halbach, uh, he said because he wanted to know what it felt like. All right? Now, um, things like that just ring true. You know, when you listen to things like that, as, as pathetic as it is, um, they, 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 they just ring true. One of the other, and nobody ever quotes, uh, quotes this, and I think this is, um, this is really indicative of, of, of Brendan. Uh, when they asked, uh, when uh, either Tom or, or Mark asked uh, Brendan about uh, raping Teresa, he indicated that he wasn't old enough to have a child yet. So his so listen to that. Yeah. His, his other than that being incredibly naive, which is which is fine. But Pat, that rings true. That's a kid who is saying, you know, I'm not quite sure what I've gotten myself into here, what I've yeah. gotten involved in. But it's the kind of thing that usually a suspect or even a, a witness isn't going to make up and say something like that. So, so yeah. when you watch the when you watch the whole interview. Uh, that's the flavor. That's the that's the feel you right. get out of it. Is this kid was involved? And I, and I would add, there's certain things of, when you listen to the whole interview. And I, Pat, I'm sure that if you did, you'd pick up on it. Where things that he is not even talking about incriminating stuff. He's giving detail about things like when we were done, we left the room and Stephen closed the door. Wow, that detail, close the door. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. He does that quite often during the interview, these, these details that don't really pertain to incriminating stuff. Um, told me to grab her clothes and her shoes. Well, but they, they provide the texture, you know, to, to the interviews that just make it, make it believable. And the jury got to see the whole, the whole interview. They didn't have any problem with whether or not this kid right. uh, was, was involved. The jury got to see the whole thing. And they, and they said, say that he's suggestible. That, that, that's currently where that's coming from, that we fed him or we suggested stuff to him. I can take you through that interview and we can find plenty of times where he resisted that. One of the big ones that he resisted was uh, the, the shooting, you know, that, that Stephen shot her. He gives us that information, talks about the gun, talks about that stuff, but not once will he agree with us when we say, you also shot her, didn't you? Did you shoot her? And we did it throughout the rest of the interview. Every now and then we'd say, and then is that when he handed you the gun? And never. He said, I've never touched that gun. Every I did time not he do said, it. Every he time no. he resisted no. that suggestion. Not that suggestible after so all. He's not, uh, and there were other when, examples. When it didn't happen, uh, he's not going to admit to it. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, clear, that's the clear message. It's exactly the right level you need to be to be interrogated. You know, you're used to dealing with people of a higher IQ level, I'm sure. Um, is it more difficult to interrogate somebody with a lower IQ, or is it child's play? Is it easier? No, I would say it's probably more difficult to to interview someone like that. Mm. Um, absolutely. Exactly the same IQ as, as uh, Stephen Avery, though. 
Let's not forget that. Wow, exactly the same. Exactly the same IQ. Which is and so they don't. They don't have yeah, just over seventy. They don't have any. They meaning the defense and the making murder people. Uh, there's no suggestion that Stephen Avery wasn't able to handle any of those interrogations. <laughs> he did just fine. And so it's not the. It's not the IQ. It's not the intelligence. It should be the title of your book. Is Stephen Avery has the same IQ as as, as, as Matt, uh, I had no idea. Uh, but but that seems really important. What does IQ mean? What does it mean when you listen to, uh, to Brendan talk and you go through those, those interviews, he shows a lot of moxie at times, I guess is maybe the word I'm thinking of. He, he talks about maybe Stephen Avery couldn't live in this world and wanted to go back to prison because this world was too what, loud for him. Too big him. for him. He said it was too, too big, big for him. For him. He talks about insight for a 16 year old. Yeah, he's got insight, especially when he's trying to defend Stephen. Not nearly as unintelligent as about him reading a novel, or he talks on the stand about reading a novel, and that's where he come up with some of the the stuff he said in our interview. And it's not the one about the rabbits and everything. It's not. Uh, No, no. no. It's uh, James Patterson's uh, "Kiss the Girls." girls. Oh wow, that's great. But he read this novel, but yet. On the other side, the defense wants to say he's got a fourth grade reading level. You know, they, they, they play him true? off as yeah. they want. When they want to play him off as, as dumb and it suits their purpose, great. And then they want to play him off as smarter and it suits their purpose, great. So where did that, that IQ number come from? Did you, from a test that you school. administered? Um, school. School records for, uh, for, uh, for Brendan. He was, uh, he was in some special classes, but uh, certainly understands uh, right from wrong, certainly able to understand the questioning and relay truthful information if he chooses to. Because one thing Brendan Dassey does is lie. And Brendan Dassey intentionally lies to keep either himself or his uncle out of trouble. So when somebody is intentionally lying to you, uh, you know, it's up to law enforcement. I, as a DA, would hope law enforcement wouldn't just say, oh, okay, well, you just, you denied it. I'd hope they'd go after him and say, you know, it just didn't happen that way. You're going to have to be honest with you and do the follow-up question. If he's lying, all bets are off, right? I mean, shouldn't it be? This isn't a, this is a 25-year-old that was raped and killed and and yes. uh, and burned. This isn't something that these Our investigators were just gonna gonna walk away from. They were gonna get to the bottom of it. One place, one thing I would say about Brendan, where he didn't lie, is in one of the interviews. At the end of the interview, we did a statement. We asked him, "Did we make any promises to you?" And he said, "Yes." And we said, well, "What was that?" And he said, you told me that I didn't have to answer questions and that I wasn't under arrest and I could leave any time I want. And that's what we told him at the beginning of that particular interview. And yeah. Does he understand? Well, wow, he, he seemed to. Did he ever get, uh, was he ever offered a, a plea agreement? He was. You know, I offered uh, Brendan a 15-year uh, prison uh, term. Uh, here's what's sad about, uh, uh, about this. Uh, his... Uh, attorneys um, recommended that he accept uh, that uh, that agreement, and it turned out to not be um, his attorneys, and it probably wasn't even Brendan himself that rejected that agreement, but it was his own family. His family had uh, called him. His grandfather uh, had uh, been recorded um, as uh, telling him, you have to 
uh, reject uh, the plea offer, don't take a plea bargain, not so much because it hurts your case, Brendan, but because it hurts Stephen's case. Can you imagine, can you imagine the 16-year-old developmentally disabled kid who needs who needs support and advice from his family members, his adult family members, and they tell him that we don't want you to take the plea bargain because it hurts Stephen's case. That is, you know, as much of a sacrificial uh, situation as we can see. You know, Tom and I and all law enforcement, we had a lot of sympathy for, for Brendan Dassey. He never would have raped and killed somebody on his own. He's a kid, a kid playing video games. He's, he's a kid without the insistence uh, without the encouragement of uh, of his uncle, the cajoling and everything else that his uncle did, this kid never would have been uh, would have been involved in. And our willingness, our plea with him uh, to get him to resolve this case without a life imprisonment, uh, you know, we did everything that uh, that we could to accomplish that. He rejected it. He said, "No, I I'm going to trial on first degree homicide." And so at that point, we just had to go forward. And I will and, second and that. A lot, a lot of, a lot of feeling for Brendan, uh, as you can hear in some of the interviews. Uh, that was from the heart, and if not for Stephen Avery, Brendan's not in prison. It's a damn. He's playing video games or whatever he's going to be doing at the, you know. On the other hand, somebody who's that suggestible in terms of crime and their uh, overbearing sociopathic uncle uh, is also a danger in his own way. I guess it could be argued, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's like they rape this woman and he you know, does it. Right. We so. convict uh, we convict or prosecute even people for what they do, not for um, not for who they are, not for who their family is. And so, um, you know, we we never looked at uh, at his attachment really to the Avery family as any kind of a of a reason to uh, to go forward with him. Unfortunately, he was involved in rape and murder and disposal of this uh, really fine young woman who, let's not forget, she's the real, uh, she's the real and only victim uh, that we have here. Uh, and I hope that uh, our efforts, again, with uh, this book and conversations like this eventually uh, will bring uh, that additional piece to the Hawbach family. You did paint that picture really well uh, in this book. Uh what the victim was like avery this is uh this is the book this is the one to get if you have any interest in making a murderer forget that and just read this and then you'll know all about Stephen avery and his family his past and everything that he did just go to crimereport.nyc that's where to get it click it and then leave a good review and uh, listen guys i, I mean i, I I, this is a better interview than I deserve, you know, honestly. <laughs> uh, I, I love talking about crime, and uh, it's it's a real treat to sit and talk with you. I apologize for wherever I'm a little uh, hazy, you know, or ignorant about you uh, know, it's everything. Been, it's been great. You guys yeah, we very much appreciate the opportunity to come here. Oh, yes. yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I only wish we could go and get into a card game someplace, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't, wouldn't end well. I haven't been to Wisconsin in forever. I, like a... A, a Skyline Comedy Club at Appleton. Yeah, I worked there a number of times. Did you? I love to work there. Cliff, you know, working there. And Madison. Boy, what a great town. Madison, Wisconsin. Milwaukee's all right. It's, uh, you know, they used to have a place there that they would put the comedians in. It was like a crack house. It was literally a crack house. It was like, because the club was right downtown. At one time, we went in there to work, and the bathroom had a shower, but there was no shower head. It was just a pipe. Ugh. Seems about right. And I missed the road. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days, right? All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, thanks very much, Pat. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you.